Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Frank D'Angelo. Frank has spent 20 years with Jackson Marketing and Motorsports and Events. Most everybody will know that's listening to this will know him from uh, that and his association with BFG through that. He is also a two-time winner of the Baja 1000 in stock full class. He is an Ormhoff inductee in 2013, and that's the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. He was the SCORE Person of the Year in 2016. And he's now competing in the American Ranch Horse Association. And uh, from what I understand, in 2021, he may have won a championship um, or a national title with them. But we'll get into all that here in just a second. First off, I'd like to say, Frank, thank you for taking the time to, to come and sit and talk and have this conversation and share your life with our listeners. Well, Rich, thank you very much for the uh, nice introduction there. And, uh, you know, as I'm starting to slow down, um, I've got more time on my hands and I'm doing a lot of the things that I like. And uh, when you reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing this podcast and would really like to uh, spend some time with you um, hearing about your life story, I, uh, I was, you know, gracious, graciously accepted, of course. And uh, since that first time we talked and today, I got to thinking about it and I thought, you know, I don't know that I've ever really shared my life story with anyone. So uh, this could be uh, very amusing to some, <laughs> very interesting to others, and, uh, and shocking to yet others. Well, I'll tell you what, I do edit these. So um, if you say anything that I think that uh, people don't need to see to hear about, we'll cut that out. I've done that with a few people um, where I go, wow, you know, people don't need to know that. So um, don't worry, <laughs> just just be at ease and, and tell your story. Um, and uh, this will be fun. I'm looking forward to this. I, I always find out more. You know, I try to do a little bit of research on everybody that I've interviewed and just doing the research, I found out quite a bit about you, and I can't wait to hear all the rest that got you to where you are today. So let's uh, let's start with the first question, and you know, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born and raised in uh, Northeast Ohio, uh, born in Youngstown, 
uh, moved the next town over when I was too young to remember uh, to Warren, Ohio. And if you look at that area, um, it is about 15 miles from the Pennsylvania state line and about 30 miles from Lake Erie. So definitely northeast corner of Ohio. Um, and later on, I, I actually had moved a little farther north to a little town called Bristolville, um, which was right inside the snow belt. Okay. Uh, so I spent most of my years uh, in the Warren area uh, and grew up, went to uh, high school um, in Howland, which is like a suburb of uh, Warren, Ohio, if you will. Wasn't in the town or city, but wasn't in the country. Um, but had we had a little bit of land and uh, got my first horse when uh, I was five years old. Um, and a little bit of a funny story there. Um, the girl down the road from me had ponies and I used to go there and ride with her when I was like five years old. And so I wanted a pony and uh my dad was adamant there was no way and my mom my mom was adamant oh yes there is <laughs> and uh you know uh after about a year or a year and a half of going back and forth that's all i ever wanted was get your horse and my mom saying yes and my dad saying no my dad came home with a uh with a pony and uh, said, here you go, and handed me this pony. And uh, boy, I was happy. And then I asked him where the saddle and bridle was. And he said, when you can ride it, I'll get you a saddle and bridle. Come to find out it was a two-coming three-year-old pony that wasn't broke. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so... After school every day, the girl down the road that had ponies would come down. She'd hold the pony. I'd get on it. She'd turn it loose. It'd go bucking and throw me off. We'd go catch it. She'd get on. I'd turn it loose. It'd go bucking and throw her off. And that went on for about a month. And finally, after about a month of hitting the ground, I don't know how many times, um, we got it broke. And uh, so then my dad had to go out and get me a saddle. That's awesome. And uh, that that really started my uh, my horse career. So I was, I don't know, probably around six years old when when all that happened. Um, but uh, had horses from then until till now, still have horses today. So uh, that's been kind of my, I guess, my hobby. You know, the thing that uh, that I like the most and, uh, you know, with the horses, I mean, I showed when I was younger and, uh, then as, uh, I had a family, um, met my wife, she was in the horses. Uh, we trail rode a lot in quite a few different States. And, you know, when I say trail ride, it's kind of liking it to four wheeling, if you will, you know, you're, uh, you're kind of, uh, out in the middle of nowhere or camping saddle up each morning and follow trails for about six, seven, eight hours each day and end up back at camp um, until the next day. Uh, so uh did that for years and years and years. Uh, as my daughter came up, she started um, 
she started in the horses. She didn't really have much choice. I think from when she was two years old on, um, I'd get my horse saddled up, get ready to go for a ride, put her on front with me, and off we'd go. Uh, but she finally decided she needed her own horse, and uh, we got her that. And then she started competing, uh, became very, very successful uh, showing, and, and actually continued to uh, grow her show career to the point where she was showing in the AQHA, which is the American Quarter Horse Association. Right. Um, and, and actually qualified, went to the world, uh, show and did real well. Um, and you know, those years I was, um, I was actually, uh, working and and I'll talk about that here in a moment. I was actually working and, uh, and then every weekend that I was home, her and I were traveling together to the shows. So we got to spend a lot of windshield time together all through her teen years, if you will. Well, that's, um, that's a good way to, to raise your kids. Yeah, it really was. Uh, we became very close. Um, so at any rate, went to, uh, went to Holland, uh, high school. And when, uh, when I was 13, my mother passed away. Uh, my dad was raising me. Uh, he really wasn't a very good person. Uh, by the time I was 16 years old, I was living with the neighbors, um, in their basement and, uh, and just trying to figure out what I was going to do, who I was going to be, um, and so forth. And, uh, the neighbors on our road were, uh, everybody knew everybody. It was a time when nobody locked anything. You know, you looked out after one another, helped one another, and had one neighbor that really helped me a lot and uh, lived with them while I was 16 and 17 years old. And when I uh, when I got to be 18 years old, I started working at a horse ranch, um, riding horses, cleaning stalls, and, you know, doing uh, whatever I could to make money. And at the same time, uh, saving money so I could go to college. And uh, my goal in college was to get a degree in criminal justice and become a lawyer. Hmm. And I have no idea why, um, but uh, that's what I pursued. And uh, so as I was going to college part time, you know, I'd work. And then when I'd save up enough money, I'd go to college. And then when I'd run out of money, I'd drop out and uh, work some more. And uh, probably took me four, four and a half years to get a two-year degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because uh, it just wasn't easy and I wasn't going to go in debt. And I don't know if anybody would have loaned me money anyways. Um, Nowadays, they would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, today they would. But uh <laughs> Back then, I'm not so sure. At any rate, uh, so the way that I got into racing is kind of interesting because it was through horses. Um, I was uh, 18 years old and, you know, uh, had moved up to this ranch that I was working on part time and staying there and had a had a horse that a friend of mine um, 
wanted to buy, had always bothered me about buying him. He was pretty good horse, pretty good size horse. And I needed money for college and I had it two other horses. So I went ahead and sold him this horse. His name was Big Mike. And uh, so he buys the horse. In the meantime, I go through working and getting through college. And while I was in college, uh, one of my friend's father worked for the local sheriff's department. And uh, so I went to the police academy, which back then was all of about 50 hours. And they hired me on as a part-time deputy but because I was young, they uh, they didn't want me patrolling the road so much. They wanted to use me uh, undercover to buy hot stuff from from criminals. And so I did that for a couple of years. Um, and he was telling me once I get my two year degree, they'd hire me in the sheriff's department. Well, lo and behold, after four years, I get my degree and. Uh, go down to the sheriff's office for the uh, interview. And, oh, let me back up one. Uh, another way to make money, I ended up going through farrier school, which is learning how to shoe horses. Right. And I did that in the summer of my junior and senior year. So when I wasn't working at the ranch, I started shoeing horses, started a little shoeing business. At any rate, when, um, when I went down to the sheriff's office to uh, get this full-time job, and my goal was get the full-time job because then um, it, as long as your career was in law enforcement, they would pay for you to go back to college. And then I was going to pursue a degree in law so that I could become a lawyer. Well, um, I go down to the sheriff's office. They make me the offer to hire me. And the offer was... I think it was 86 or $8,900 a year. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm making that working part-time jobs. There's, there's just no way I'm going to, I'm going to continue working for that amount of money. And, and especially in that line of work. So I declined and then I didn't, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And, uh, about two weeks after I declined that offer, the guy I had sold the horse to calls me back and says, hey, you want to buy that horse back? And he was a really good horse. And I said, sure. And uh, we negotiated same price and everything. Well, I go to pick him up and him and a gentleman by the name of Don Minton, which is a guy that I grew up with. Um, are both over there. I go over there to buy the horse back, and I'm asking Big Mike, uh, what, why are you selling them? He said, Frank, I got a job in Colorado on a cattle ranch, and they've already got three horses for me to use on the cattle ranch, so I really just don't need them. I said, okay. So then I started asking him what he had been doing for the last couple of years, two, three years, and he and this Don Minton tell me they're working for BF Goodrich. <laughs> and I'm like, really, what are you doing? And they said, we are driving tractor trailer. BF Goodrich just got into racing. We do off-road and pavement racing. 
And uh, during the winter months, we haul their show cars around. So, wow, that's pretty interesting. Sounds like a pretty good job. And Big Mike said, well, yeah, you know, I'm leaving. So they're looking. They're looking for someone. <laughs> Why are you interested? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm looking for a job. So long story short, I got hired um, into BF Goodrich and started driving tractor trailer for them. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. There were only three of three drivers and only two tractor trailers at the time. And uh, Don Minton, who has also been involved, and his name will come up again a little later in this story. But um, he was one of the tractor trailers, myself and, a, and another gentleman called Bud Ankrum. At any rate, uh, drove tractor trailer. Didn't really even know what racing was, if you can believe that. I mean, I never watched NASCAR. I never watched IndyCar. I, I just didn't follow racing. I was very seldom on TV or watching TV. Well, yeah, you had a um, different interest. Horses. Yeah, you were into horses. Yeah. Absolutely. Horses? Yeah. Then I was going to, you know, get involved more in, in law. Um, at any rate, um, so during those three years driving truck, um, a couple things happened that I guess made me kind of stick out to the bosses at uh, BF Goodrich. And they decided they were going to race two cars on street radials at Nürburgring. Oh, wow. And then again, and then again at, uh, at Lamar. And they decided they were going to load the cars up in the tractor trailer with tires, all the team tools, everything ship the tractor trailer over to Europe and uh, do these two races. So they happened to pick me to be the driver that would, would go do this for them. And so if you can imagine a young guy that's like 22, 23 years old, his assignment for the summer is to drive this tractor trailer around Europe and attend these races. And so you're yeah. you're taking a full-size American semi-truck and trailer. And so you're probably did it have a sleeper on it? Yeah. So you're you're well in excess of of probably 65 feet. And you're going to Europe which has for the most part pretty narrow roads, correct? Yes it is. Um yeah, my, my experience really was just the two years prior to this driving in the U.S. and, of course, down to Mexico for the Baja 500 and Baja 1000. And uh, when they selected me to go, I actually drove to the race shops, picked up the two cars, all the tools, everything else, took it to uh, New York, put it on a uh, large barge in that, or large ship. Um, and then came home and six weeks later, I flew over to Amsterdam to pick it up. And, uh, again, I'm like 22 years old going on 23. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm thinking I got the world by the tail. It's just pretty awesome. Um, they had a, uh, they had an interpreter meet me there. And, uh, we finally got the tractor trailer off the docks and because we were 
taller, wider, longer, and heavier than anything over there. We had to get permits to go on the roads that we went on. And in many cases, he ended up, uh, it might be an eight hour drive to get to a destination that was 60 miles away. <laughs> and it's because we wouldn't fit under certain bridges. So we'd have to drive out and around. Wow. And yeah, my, my first trip, Rich was, um, from Amsterdam where I picked it up to go to Nürburgring, Germany. And so we only had one border to cross. And, uh, this interpret we're supposed to get there hopefully within one day but once we figured out uh all the permits and the route we had to go there was there was not going to be any any way to do it um what happened was we got out of town we got to the uh border and we pulled up to the first station and they measured our width and they said you're too wide park it over there you have to run in town and get a width permit well that happened four times because the next we did that got that passed went to the next place you're too long park it over there go into town we couldn't do it all at once we uh we actually got uh got stopped at each of these so the plan changed pretty radically and uh and we ended up having to spend the night there um at the border with the with the truck park right there and uh my interpreter uh, found a little boarding house that we spent the night in, got up the next morning and, uh, you know, went the rest of the way through the border and then on to Nürburgring, the track. Um, once we get to the track, we're having a team meeting by now, all the big bosses from Goodrich had flown in the race teams, their wives, um, and everybody's there at the track. And my job, once I got to the track was to unload the tractor trailer mount up all their tires and then i was pretty much done until it was time to leave upon which time i would load everything up and go on to the next track well we're standing around and there the ladies decide they need to go sightseeing and they need to go uh shopping and so forth and so the big boss at goodrich is looking around to see who might be able to take them and, and there's Frank. There. <laughs> yeah, I'm standing back there with my hand up in the air like, oh, yeah, I can do this. So for three or four days leading up to the race, then I was chauffeuring a van full of ladies around to any place they wanted to go see in the area and uh, and shopping. And uh, again, I'm 22 going on 23 years old. So uh, being able to experience that was very cool and uh and then at the same time being able to see the area and the history and so on and so forth and so uh spent the better part of a summer uh doing that and because bf goodrich was just getting involved um in the pavement and trying to get their brand known real well this pavement event, Nürburgring, they actually, it's an endurance race. It goes 24 hours. We had two cars. Each car had three drivers. One of the drivers was James Brolin. Oh, wow. Yeah, the uh, the movie star and actor. So um, 
got to know him and his wife pretty well. At any rate, uh, the brain trust that BF Goodrich decided they needed to document this. So the whole time we're over there, uh, they got a film crew following us around. And uh, they made a film called 24 Hours of Nurburgring. And uh, it was basically to send out to the dealers and to a host of other people to promote the fact that uh, we were over there racing this big endurance race on street radial tires. Uh, so that was quite the experience. Uh, we also did uh, uh, Le Mans that year with the two cars and uh, and the team and uh, similar stories to to that. Um, and then when it was all over, I drove the tractor trailer back to the dock and put it on a ship and picked it up when we got back here. And uh, then as the, they called it the performance team at BF Goodrich, and it was anybody involved in the racing program. Um, and as it started to grow a little bit more, every year I was there, there was a new off-road manager and uh there was john gillespie and then rick beaver and then in 1982 there was bob bauer and uh i was the truck driver for the off-road program i was the main mainstay there and uh there had been talk for about a year or so after i got back from france that uh, I really wasn't a truck driver. While I could wheel it and get it down the road pretty good, I was probably uh, a little more involved, passionate, and smarter than the typical truck driver, if you will. <laughs> and uh, they said I really they needed to find a position for me. Well, this whole time that I'm driving truck and getting more and more into motorsports, Rich, when, when I get involved in something, I dive headfirst into it. And uh, I did that with racing. Um, I started, you know, teaching myself through books and stories and listening. Um, I started teaching myself about motorsports marketing, um, why, why companies spend money to go racing, what they get out of it, how they utilize it. You know how it works. Studied various uh, programs that were very successful or not, and why they were or were not, um, and just really became a uh, student of the sport, if you will. Um, so as we move forward uh, in 1982, towards the end of 82, the F. Goodrich had a hiring freeze where you couldn't hire anyone inside the company. And uh, at the same time, Bob Bauer had served a year in the off-road program, wanted to get back to the West Coast and uh, made them aware he was taking a field job within the company and moving back to the West Coast. So uh, Gary Pace, the head boss, had all, always had his eye on me anyways. and He's the one I went to Europe with. Um, he wanted myself and Bob highly recommended that, uh, that they hire me as well. Um, uh, because the previous couple of years, every time someone new came in off road, I was, I was introducing them to the people, 
giving them ideas on new things we should be doing and how we should be doing it and how to grow the program and so forth. So Bob basically told them, you know, if you guys don't bring Frank in, you're you're crazy. And uh, they were already wanting to. But long story short, at the beginning of 83, they hired me into the office to manage their uh, off-road race program and other uh, light truck programs. By that time, they were starting to expand to a lot of grassroots racing, both pavement and off-road, starting to do things like uh, Pikes Peak Hill Climb, Moab, uh, Easter Jeep Safari, and just starting to get involved in all those, those things as well. So um, hired me in in 83, and uh, I stayed working for them from 83 through 89. The big boss had left, the guy that I'd gotten along with so well. They had had a couple of other bosses at, uh, at BF Goodrich. And uh, the motorsports programs continued to grow. So we started to get specialized, and I was at that time then running all off-road, all off-road grassroots and so forth, using some of the field guys like a Jeff Cummings um, that would go out and do programs with the grassroots off-road organizations. And uh, about that time, I got married. I had a daughter, had started a family, and so... In 1988, I started telling my boss that I needed some help in the office, and uh, I didn't want to travel as much as I had been. And back then, Rich, I mean, we travel, you've traveled a lot, I travel a lot, but back then, I was traveling like probably 40 weeks out of the year. Right. Uh, It was a pretty hot and heavy schedule, and so I told him I wanted some help. Well. On the pavement side, the guys that were running the pavement program, they ended up having three people run their pavement program and plus have a helper. And there I am by myself trying to keep the off-road program going. So in uh, 1989, at the Parker 400, my my then big boss came out to the race and um was learning about it and so forth. And I pulled him aside at that point and I said, Hey, um, by the end of the year, you need to have hired some help for me. Um, I would like a, uh, an assistant. And I was pushing for Don Minton, the other tractor trailer driver that, uh, drove when I drove and continued driving after that. And, uh, so after that weekend, I thought I made it very clear to him that I wouldn't keep going unless I got some help and I gave until the end of the year. Well, lo and behold, we get to September and he, uh, he had not done anything. And so I decided I'd had enough and I was leaving. Didn't know what I was going to do, but I was leaving. <laughs> and so I put in my notice. And uh, it was it was kind of funny in that he didn't know what to do, uh, how to handle it. Um, 
told his boss, who was a uh, VP, a vice president, who I knew pretty well. Vice president came to me and said, uh, you can't do this. What's going on? Why are you leaving? You I, always love when, I always love when companies tell you you, you can't quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they were uh, getting kind of nervous. Um, and during that time, and, and I heard you mention uh, score person of the year. Right. Um, in 2016. Well, if you look back far enough, I think I, I also won it in either 85 or 86. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the reason I ended up getting it then, um, and again, I, I could probably talk forever, but we had score international doing six, six races, maybe eight races a year. And then we had Walt Watt with high desert racing association doing off-road races in the States and they were competitors. And sometimes their race dates would be very, very close to one another. Uh, there was manufacturers coming and getting involved in the, um, in the sport in a big way. And everybody was fighting for the sponsor dollar for the uh, racers to race their series and so on and so forth. And, uh, and I thought this is ridiculous. So I'd had some individual conversations with Sal and then I'd had some individual conversations with Walt Watt and about what do you guys think? Could you ever work together? You know, uh, could we make something happen where there weren't conflicting race dates and there wasn't this and there wasn't that? And so I felt like, yeah, if if there was some value in it for them, they would do it. So from there, I called a manufacturer's meeting because I, I was still working for BF Goodrich and well thought of. And the brand was because we were expanding and growing the programs and so forth. And so. I called a manufacturer's meeting together um, and had a couple topics on my mind. One was getting the series to work together. Um, and another one was having a class that the manufacturers could hang their hat on that ended up being trophy truck later on down the road. Um, at any rate, was able to uh, put some things together and, uh, the following year, the off-road schedule came out, and it was score high desert together. Oh, wow. And Yeah, and so it combined the series, so people were now running one big off-road championship. And so I was recognized by score with, uh, with person of the year, and then uh, I think it was Ron Katz, a California assemblyman, you know, provided me with a resolution for bringing them together and getting everyone to work together. And, and you know what, Rich, to me, what needed to happen was just common sense. I am not the brightest person in the world, I don't think, but right. I think I have a lot of common sense. And that's all I was looking at was, you know, what makes the most sense for the sport to grow? And it's for those two to get together. Right. And, you know, you know and that, that, in rock sports, there was an attempt to do that same thing, and there was 
it just wasn't going to work out because of ideologies. I hate to say it. Yeah. And yeah, it just, you know, the, the purposes behind why they were doing it and the purposes why I was doing it were completely opposite. So yeah. it was never going to mold, even though I tried. I had a much yes. better sh- chance when it was Arca and us than I did when it became you rocking us. But that's, you know, that was, uh, that was just ideological differences. But I'm glad that HDRA and SCORE did that. I didn't realize, I didn't, you know, I wasn't into the off-road scene like that um, back then. So I didn't, I didn't even realize that. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, with the rock sports, I mean, I, I lived it as well. Um, knew all the various promoters and I hear what you're saying. And, um, uh, I think, I think rock sports came on and it was rock crawling to right. be clear. The, you know, there was no rock racing back then, but it came on the scene so quickly and so fast. <laughs> I think that everybody thought this is the next golden goose and everybody could run their series. And so I, I certainly understand when you say, you know, Hey, tried to get everyone together, but, uh, very different personalities, very different thought processes. <laughs> and, uh, everybody was going to be the next, uh, best thing since sliced bread. So I, I totally, I totally uh, hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but uh, so score and high desert get together um, and, uh, and it's one series. And then pretty soon, a few years after that, Walt Watt ends up passing away and um, Sal or score end up purchasing HDRA. And then it just becomes score again. Um, but going back to that Parker race where I talked to my boss about, Hey, I need to, I need to have some help I'm starting a family. I need to be home more and so forth. I don't know if they thought I was kidding or what, but the pavement side of the business got help and I didn't. So in September I put in my notice, it gets up to the vice president. He comes back to me and says, you can't do this. What's it going to take you to stay? So on and so forth. And I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out. But if every time I needed something, I came to you guys and threatened to quit in order to get it, it wouldn't take very long. And you're not going to like that. (laughs) And that's not who I am. And so, no, I am leaving. So then he asked me to help him find someone to take over the off-road racing program. And uh, I said, I would do that. And he asked me not to leave with my two-week notice, but to stay till the end of the year. So I told him I would stay to the end of the year and help the new person as long as the new person was someone that I had approved of. (laughs) And uh, he agreed. Well, the person that I chose from in, inside the company was Dan Newsom. 
And Dan and I had become good friends. Dan was in advertising. In fact, I think he was leading the advertising department, um, doing really well, had lots of interest. And then later on, passion for off-road. And so uh, we were not allowed to tell anyone who it was going to be. And Dan started splitting his time between advertising and off-road racing with me. and. He went on his first pre-run with me that year to help Mark Pitts and set up the program and to do all those things and including uh, contracting our drivers for the following year. So Dan comes in in 1989 and ends up running the program for the next 10 years. And, you know, Dan is very well known, very well thought of um, in the industry also. And uh, there, there isn't anyone that could have been a better choice than Dan. Dan just uh, had the drive, had the passion, you know, was uh, that person that wanted everything perfect and would work the extra time or hours to make that happen. Um, so that that was how Dan came about. But, uh, you know, I think, and, and my memory is... Uh, a little foggy in some areas, but um, when did rock crawling really get big and hot and heavy? The first event was 98. Okay. And then 99, 2000, when the series um, ARCA got started. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So Dan is running the. Uh, the off-road program, I leave BF Goodrich without a clue in the world of what I was going to do. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, word on the street gets out that I've left. And so people are calling and, you know, offering me jobs and so forth. And when that phone started ringing, Richie, after about, I don't know, eight or 10 calls, I said, I don't need to go work for someone. I'll start my own business. So that's what I did. I started my own business and uh, decided I was going to do motorsports marketing and uh, got a couple small programs, but was very fortunate in that Ford Motor Company was looking to develop an off-road program that was something they didn't know what, but was something that would be the biggest thing that that had ever happened to off-roading. And I knew a couple of folks at Ford Motor Company, and they were sending out RFPs, requests for proposals, from marketing agencies that wanted to uh, take over their off-road program and do something different, special, and big. Hmm. And uh, they decided they'd send it out to three companies um, because of friends at Ford and people that knew me. I was going to be one of the three that uh, that would get a chance to bid on this. And let me back up from that. It wasn't only because of that. It was because of a guy that was involved in off-road racing that also owned two Ford dealerships. And his name was Dick Landfield. Right. And he had this idea of what a, you know, Ford coming 
um, out with this super team, if you will. Um, didn't know what it would be called, what it would look like, but just had the concept of Ford can race in all these different classes, um, all under the same sponsor umbrella, and uh, and thought that would be the biggest splash Ford could make. And by the way, we know who you should ask to bid on that, and that would be Frank D'Angelo. So. Lo and behold, I get I get one of the three uh, requests for proposals. I took a great deal of time putting it together on who, what, where, when, why, how, the whole nine yards, and um, put that together and sent it to them. And uh, ended up getting a call from Ford and uh, saying, hey, you need to get up here to Dearborn. We want to sit down and talk with you. So I did. And at that time, living in Northeast Ohio, I was, gosh, I was all of about three hours from, from Detroit. So went up, met with them, um, and met at that time, Michael Cranifus and Lee Morris, who were the top two people at uh, Ford Racing. And I guess they liked what I had to say. Uh, they had some folks that, uh, ask questions, ask for opinions on certain things. And anybody that knows me knows I'm pretty transparent. I'll tell them what's on my mind. And uh, right. I did. And most of the time, uh, they were in agreement with it. There were a couple times that they thought maybe um, I was a little far right or far left. I'm not sure which. But uh, at any rate, left there, and uh, they called me up and hired me. And uh, my plan was that while we would take direction from them, I needed to manage everything. Um, I needed to manage the sponsorship and what the sponsors got. I needed help with designing the look and the feel. But I wanted to have input into it, and I would decide when it was right or wrong. Wow. <laughs> and uh, wanted to have my fingerprints on everything, basically. And so they finally agreed, and we uh, we put the program together and started with uh, five vehicles the first year, and all common sponsors, all painted the same, you know, pulled all the resources. So we had our own pit network, did communications. We did all the media. I hired a uh, lady from the West Coast that had been around forever that I'd been really good friends with for a long time and admired her work. Uh, and that was Madeline Bullman. Um, and she actually moved back to Ohio. I couldn't believe I'd get her to move back, but she did. And that was my first client uh, for my business. And then from there, you know, got other uh, smaller clients. And then BF Goodrich hired me back to consult. And so had a uh, pretty good, successful business uh, for 10 years. And uh, ran it out of a little office building close to my house. As that grew, as that business grew, um, I needed a partner because I didn't want to necessarily deal with the day-to-day -day operations. I wanted to be involved in the um, in the planning and the strategic thinking and planning for the clients and. Um, that kind of stuff. So 
the guy that I'd known for a long time that I told you earlier, his name would surface again, uh, Don Minton. Uh, Don, oh, by the way, when I left B.F. Goodrich and they hired Dan Newsom, they also hired Don Minton, who was still driving truck for him and brought him in the office as well. Which um, is what you had asked for. Yes. <laughs> so they, they, they didn't give me any help, but when I left, they had two people doing the same job and then hired me to consult as well. So I, I felt pretty good about that. Although I thought, guys, why didn't you just do what I asked when, <laughs> when I asked, exactly. but and then, yeah. At any rate, so I called Don up after I was in business for a year, year and a half and said, Don, this thing's growing like crazy. Need some help. How would you like to become a partner? <laughs> He said yes, gave him his notice for the end of the year, and then joined me. And, you know, you couldn't find probably too many people that would be 180 degrees opposite the other. Um, but that's what Don and I were. You know, I was the serious guy. He was the joke teller and prankster. And you probably met Don maybe early on in one of the pits or whatever. Because um, I, I can remember. I won't remember what year, but I can remember you coming down and working a pit. And if I remember correctly, it was a Southern pit and probably in San Juanico. First time I worked a pit was in 2003. And we were outside of the, on the road, Catavina to fish camp. And that was with um, Jack Seipolt's crew. <laughs> okay yes yes because i owned vora at the time and okay so i had met jeff and then Seipolt was out there um jack was out there at our races doing you know support for the bfg drivers and the association and i asked about baja and then that's when i went down that's the year they shot dust to glory okay that was okay the first gotcha time. yeah Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Jack would have had a pickup truck yep. and been pulling his gooseneck trailer and you would have been in a big, big box truck Yep, with all the spares and stuff. Am I right? Yep. Spares and gas and fuel cans, dump cans. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I remember. Wow. You know, as I get older, there's some things I get a little foggy on remembering, and then there's other things that just stick out to me, right. uh, like it was last week. But uh, wow, <laughs> that uh, that was a long time ago. That was almost 20 years ago. Yep, yep, real close to that. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. So at any rate, I um, I ran my own business then for 10 years. Um, from 89 to 99, um, and did the Rough Rider program, was involved with some of the owners when they started the NASCAR truck program, um, helped facilitate that and get that over to NASCAR. I'll tell you, had a yeah, pretty amazing career um, up to that point and um, had, I guess it would have been 20 years of involvement in the sport 
And if it would have ended then, I would still have been happy and felt like, you know, I'd accomplished a lot, made a lot of friends, uh, a lot of contacts in the industry and seen a lot. But um, what happened was uh, all of the BF Goodrich tractor trailer drivers, and by that time there were nine of them. Wow. They were always they were always contracted by an outside agency. They were never hired inside of BF Goodrich or Michelin. They were like with leasing companies and trucking companies and so forth. And uh, but all of them were very unique individuals, as as you're probably aware. You got to meet most of them. Yep. Um, that had been around and. Uh, they they really went. They all had passion for what they do, and when you can find workers that have passion for what they do, you want to hang on to them forever. Um, at any rate, uh, Herb Johnson, who was then running motorsports for BF Goodrich, was going to lose some quite a few of the drivers, and so he approached uh, Daryl Jackson at Jackson Marketing and said, "Hey, would you hire?" these tractor trailer drivers in will run, run them through your business. And so he did, um, he started a motorsports company and hired the nine drivers in and watched all of the BF Goodrich and Michelin tractor trailers coming and going to different types of events and went back to Herb Johnson and said, uh, Herb, these trucks going back and forth. I, I suspect they're going to races and events. Yeah. Well, how do I get more of your motorsport business? And by that time, my company had uh, had uh, bid and got a lot of the BF Goodrich work for special events and their training program, all and stuff, and putting drivers on the road and so forth. And uh, Herb told him, well, you need to hire someone that knows motorsports. And Daryl asked him, do you know of anybody? And he kind of chuckled <laughs> and pointed him towards me. And uh, so Daryl and I had several conversations. And uh, by that time, my partner, Don Mitten, had decided he didn't want to travel as much. Uh, and one of our clients had a uh, manufacturing facility close to us. And he had been offered a job with them and so to run their plant, basically. And so after about a year of conversations and talking about it, Don decided he was going to go and do that. And I decided I was going to cut back the size of our company because we, we had grown it to about 15 full-time employees and we're doing a lot. We're staying plenty busy and so forth. And I was looking to slow it down a little bit, be more involved in the individual programs rather than just chasing new business. Um, and Don wanted to stay home more. And so we went in that direction. We kind of split and I downsized the business and he went to work for one of our clients. Well, I get a call from Daryl Jackson um, and we talk about everything. And so I end up down in Greenville and Jackson Marketing is very, very close to where Michelin resides and, uh, you know, basically says, uh, we'd love to have you, uh, love to have you down here running our motorsports business, um, and helping us grow it. We've got the nine drivers. We think there's more potential and so on and so forth. And 
Um, I told him I'd think about it. And, uh, and then I said, you know, I, I talked to my wife about it. And she said, no, nah, wouldn't move. Um, want to stay kid family in Northeast Ohio and so forth. My daughter was 16 at the time. So, you know, couldn't take her out of school then. Um, so basically told Daryl, no, that's not going to be able to happen. Um, but then uh, met his dad and met another gentleman at, that helped run the business, uh, Kevin Johnson there, and they were pretty persuasive. Um, and, you know, after I got done talking to his dad, I felt like this is a company that I would be good working for and helping grow that business. Um, I could tell that uh, Daryl's dad, Larry is his name, was a good Christian man, a very strong um, ethics, and uh, treated people the way you would want to be treated, went out of his way um, in so many ways with the business to have it be a really good place to work. And so came down a couple other times uh, visiting them and so forth. And finally, I, we made a deal that I could stay in Northeast Ohio for now and I would join their company. I'd bring the business I had with, you know, already with me. And so we did that. Um, we did that at the start of 99. And uh, when I did that, that meant that the BF Goodrich Motorsports stuff and and events stuff that i was doing was coming with me so jackson automatically kind of inherited that business and then um, dan newsom calls me up one day and says i'm moving along i'm going to get involved in some pavement stuff that michelin has going on and bf goodrich has going on and would like you to take the off-road program back over <laughs> so uh i did um actually that happened probably before that happened a little before i signed on with jackson so basically my role at bf goodrich was 10 years an employee then 10 years as their main motorsport agency and doing everything for them that i could with dan newsom running the program and then Lo and behold, I'm back in the fold, and I'm actually the face person again for BF Goodrich. Um, so it was kind of funny how it went full circle. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, that's that's that is because of who you are. Well, yeah, you you know, Rich, I I have a saying that I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> and it's because I don't think it's work when you love what you're doing. And I'll tell you what. I have loved what I've been doing for the last 44 years. Uh, there is nothing that I would that that I would change. Um, the experiences, the people, you know, the organizations, the challenges, and and I love challenges um, and trying to come up with innovative ways of making things happen. Um, so it was it's it's all been really, really good. So I end up uh, going to work for Jackson, but I've got the BF Goodrich business 
And then a couple years later, or maybe around that time, rock crawling hits. Yep. And it hits in a big way, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, I can remember seeing things on special shows like a talk show or, you know, programs that talk about what's going on in in the world and so forth. I mean, it came on so big, it was unbelievable. And, you know, it it kind of uh, had everybody watching it. And with B.F. Goodrich, it had them looking at it. But the whole time that they're looking at it, which was only a few months, they're getting farther and farther behind. There's other tire companies, Goodyear, for one, that jumped in with both feet. They seen it coming. And jumped in early, um, and some others as well. And pretty soon, um, BF Goodrich has little to no involvement. We we signed up like one or two competitors. And uh, we're kind of still learning and checking it out. And there was, we called him the whiz kid that got hired into marketing at BF Goodrich. And his name was very appropriate. <laughs> And he kind of studied where what was going on in uh, like truck motorsports and events and different things. And he went to management and sold them on the fact that they were way behind, that the next best thing was going to be rock sports and specifically rock crawling. And that we needed to turn our focus and attention towards that. So I got the message, it's like full speed ahead, and it's rock sports. So we got someone to start designing tires, and Jeff Cummings, who had been forever in the field and doing whatever needed done. I mean, he's had lots of different jobs from training to sales to putting programs together to managing grassroots programs to helping me mark, you know, the course in Baja to you name it. And I called upon him, and between him and I, we uh, we we figured out a plan to get involved in the rock sports or rock crawling as it was back then, and uh, jumped in with both feet. And BF Goodrich's involvement early on, you know, once they figured it out and had a product, I mean, we uh, we tried to hit every event we could. We tried to you know, provide the top teams with tires and uh, just kind of jumped in with both feet. And, uh, you know, it's different today than what it was back then. Absolutely. You know, in terms of the sport and everything. But anybody that was involved early on, um, for me, and and remember I told you I'm a motorsport nut. I'm very passionate about all forms of motorsport and follow just about all forms. People can go look at a rock race today and truly be amazed. There's no doubt about it. Um, what those vehicles do out there is, you know, they shouldn't be able to do. Right. It's very <laughs> impressive. Very impressive. But I got to tell you, uh, when I went to my first few rock crawling events, I was absolutely blown away at what these competitors were doing with their vehicles and the courses that the promoters like yourself 
would set up. I mean, you could look at some of those things and say there is no way that vehicle is getting over there. And some people would go, yeah, that was like watching paint dry. Well, you know what? It's because you weren't passionate. You didn't understand the talent, skill level, and type of vehicle you had to have to get through some of those things and over some of those things. I don't know. I was just blown away right. at, the, at the rock crawling. Um, and then as it involved, you know, evolved into rock racing, that was just imp- as impressive. I mean, I was fortunate enough that Dave and I believe it was, was it Jeff, his partner? Yep. Okay. When they invited me out the first time for a KOH plan or a run, it was after their first initial one that they did with 12 people. I was out there for the next one, helping them with the course and so on and so forth. And again, very, very impressive. And to see how rock crawling had evolved into now rock racing, if you will, was to me was just as impressive. But um, I certainly remember the years when I want to say that there was three or four or five rock crawling series, maybe all at the same time. There was seven. Okay. A couple of them were just in their own parks, but they had, but they had complete series. I mean, they didn't, they didn't necessarily was run by the park. It was run by somebody else, but all the events were at that park type thing. Okay. Yeah. And then there was the four traveling or yeah. Four traveling shows. Yes. Yep. Um, I don't know. It, it just, it grew, excuse me. It grew so darn fast and, and so quick and so big in such a short time. It was amazing. It was just amazing. I mean, I'm I'm still a fan. I don't follow all the rock sports as much. In fact, I don't follow all the motorsports as much as I used to. Um, but to me, that was one of the things that came on the scene in a big way. Um, and it's still pretty cool. You know, I think so, one of the rate, I think one of the things that ahead. helped that was that at that point you could take your trail rig, things that you were going you know, rock crawling on extreme trails and camping with, and you could compete in it. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, you could, there's very few types of racing where you can take your daily driver and go out and race it. You know, there's specifically built vehicles. That's what rock crawling and rock racing has turned into is now it's it's specifically built vehicles. So there there is that wane of you know from the old days where you could just jump in with anything to getting to where we are now where you know to be competitive you have to have something that was specially built. So oh, yeah. And I think that's that's why there was such a explosion and so quick. You know, it was kind of like street drag racing. You know, everybody was doing it, but you know, you'd only see it at the drag strips on like Wednesday night grudge, you know, grudge night or whatever. Sure. Sure. So. Yeah. Um, well, uh, now I think there's, I don't know, there's still a few couple rock racing series and then still some rock crawling yep. um, series, but uh, 
you know, today all motorsports uh, is competing with so many other opportunities for consumers to be a part of or watch or spectate or what have you. That it's just, uh, you know, it's very challenging um, to attract sponsors as well as competitors and fan base and so forth. But uh, I think we probably live during the peak of all that. Um, I think since that time when motorsports was any form of motorsports was like the hot ticket uh, for sponsors, competitors, and so on and so forth. I think um, you still have the competitors that are trying and wanting to do it. But I think in terms of manufacturer support, sponsor support, there's so many other opportunities for them that we've seen a little bit of a decline from that, that peak time. And I don't know that we'll ever see that again, but you and I are probably pretty fortunate to have to have been involved and lived during during that period. Um, not to say it's all dried up and gone because it's not. It's still all very popular. Any form of motorsports, of course, has a good following. But um, but I think what we've seen um, was was a very special time. I agree. I, I agree one hundred percent. And I think that, but, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to, you know, say that one of the things that has hurt, I think, off-road in general, um, the rock crawling, rock sports, off-road racing, short course, and all that is, is television. Um, and I, and I mean, and I mean that in a good and a bad way. Um, we've gotten exposure but I don't think that we've gotten the kind of exposure that builds lasting relationships with our, with our potential um, spectator. It's all the shows want to be result driven. You know, they'll, they show thing and then it, here's your trophy. You know, they show a race, they show, you know, a couple of rollovers and a rock crawl and, you know, one or two good runs and then, you know, which are spliced just to the hard parts. And then they go, you know, here's your trophy. And what that does is it, it's, it's semi satisfying for those that are competing in it that know the sport, but it doesn't help the other potential spectators out there that might get involved and businesses as well, because it's, it doesn't tell why. Why do people yeah. do this? And I mean, it's, you know, it's that, it's that, that dirt, um, you know, that whole mentality of why people are out in the dirt, you know, why are, yes. why are people out in the rocks out in the middle of nowhere doing this? It doesn't tell that story. And that's been the thing I've tried to do with television and trying to find somebody to tell our story was to get involved with the why, not just the results. But exactly all the television ever wants now is results or they want to fake it. And it becomes, you know, ice road truckers, American chopper and swamp people all in one, you know, one show. And that, (laughs) that surely doesn't do anything for the, for the integrity of the sports. Right. Right. Well, and you know, um, it used to be, and, and I'm sure you remember, 
it used to be that the way you measured the success of your event or events um, and where you stood in relationship to other motorsport uh, events and activities was if you got television. Right. It was like, first of all, you didn't go after a big sponsor unless you had television. And then when you finally were able to put together a television package, you made it. Your series or your event was now something that was uh, very attractive to everyone. And in today's world, that is simply not the case. Yeah, television doesn't um, really exist. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and people don't watch it. They want the information now. They want to see it live. They want, you know, and with sponsors um, and many of them that had been involved in motorsports for so many darn years that maybe you don't see them as involved or involved at all is there are so many opportunities now for them to purchase advertisement on different social media platforms. And so some of those motorsport dollars are being shifted to the various social media platforms. Yep. Um, and, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but um, you know, today in the series that I am the series director for, which is Championship Off-Road, when we started in uh, three years ago, uh, 2020, everyone said, you have to have television or you will fail. <laughs> and I said, we do not need television. We have it today, but that was secondary. I said, what we need is all the social media platforms um, being present on them. And we need to have a great live feed production and uh, let people know about it so that people can tune in and watch what they want for however long they want and then tune back out. And that's what we did with Champ Off-Road. And uh, in our very first year, it caught on like you can't believe. And it was because we produced a really good live feed program. Um, we did things that had not been done before. Um, example, we hired a uh, professional drone pilot out of Texas to come up and fly during our close course races. I mean, he was down on the track. You know, those types of tracks lend itself to fans, spectators, and television being able to see the whole thing. Right. And then to bring then to bring a drone into that element and be able to fly between two cars racing and right down on the deck. I mean, the footage was was stuff that had never been anything like that had been seen before. And the numbers just shot up to be stupid crazy. Well, then a network came to us the following year and said, hey, that's really good stuff. We want it for television. And so now we are on television. Um, but live feed came before the television. And the television is something that, while it's good, while we love to have it, it's, it's not something that everybody will tune into these days because, you know, people want to know results right away. They want to see the action. They don't want to hear about an accident. They want to see it. 
They don't want to hear about who won. They want to see it. And if you can provide live feed that's entertaining uh, in real time, people are, are just attracted to that. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's changed from when if you didn't have TV or you measured your success by when you did get TV to now it not being as important. Right. Um, so any any series out there that can't create that type of show and and be able to get it out there to the fans um, real time and have it make sense to them, uh, they're going to struggle. I think they're going to struggle with sponsorship and, and a fan following. Yeah, and I, uh, I but and again, I, 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 I jumped ahead there. That's, Sorry about that's that. all right. But you know, racing racing provides something that like a trials type competition, which is rock crawling or, or the motorcycle trials can't. And that's that start finish in a short period of time. You know, the, yes. the green, the green flag to the checkered flag, whether it be 20 minutes or one hour, you know, of action, constant moving where you have multiple cars and camera angles to check one course, rock crawling doesn't have that. Um, right. Motorcycle trials doesn't have it. Now, is there the same kind of drama? Yeah, I think there is. It's uh, except yeah. that it's a lot harder to portray that. Plus, everybody understands green go, checkered stop, start finish. Yep. People yes. don't understand trials. You know, right. and so putting that that story together is a lot more difficult than just having, you know, the drone down in amongst the cars, which is really cool and gives you some great action and stuff, but it's it's you know it's 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 basic start right. finish right. in a short period of yes. time. And that's what lends itself to television. Yes. You know, and that's, that's the thing we've always fought with, with rock sports, whether it's the, the racing or with the, um, cause even when I was doing dirt riot, the races, we were, you know, we were on anywhere from three to seven mile tracks and the races yes. would be an hour to two hours long. Well, you can't cover that kind of stuff, you know, with three cameras and one drone, you know, exactly. And, and exactly. live feeds, you know, where are we at? You know, and it's, so that's, it's enough. It's definitely rock sports is more of a niche, but it's also has the appeal that how many people own four wheel drives. <laughs> so the potential for those people to become enthusiasts beyond just, you know, driving in the their mall or to and from work in their daily driver Jeep or, or Toyota or whatever they're driving is, you know, the potential is there to grab them if we can get out to do it. And, and that's that again, like you said, is social. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you, you know, the thing about it is, um, championship off-road was fortunate enough to you know one of the companies that they have is a production company so right um 
they're fortunate enough to bring a television truck out to each event with a producer, you know, with announcers, with the cameras around the track, and then the live feed with the pre-recorded commercials. With So what they're producing in their live feed is action all the time and something that looks like a television show, okay, with lots of excitement. If you consider what golf does, and to me, I, I mean, I like to play once in a while, as long as I can have an adult beverage with me. <laughs> um, but if you look at pro golf and what they do there, they are covering all 18 holes at the same time. And they've got announcers that are talking about the players, which would be competitors in our case, and you know where they're at what they just shot and here's their latest shot and all and they're packaging that kind of as a television program so my point being is for rock crawling to be able to have that super great live feed would require more money than what most would be able to afford because like you say You've got all these different obstacles, so you'd have to have cameras on all of them. You have to have a truck that's mixing all of the in input, and then you'd have to have people that are constantly talking about it and know all the competitors. And I mean, it would be a major production to do that, and that would be extremely expensive. And then if, it, if it's a good live feed like that, you will get sponsors that want to be a part of it but you've got to make the live feed happen before you can sell the, the sponsors on the commercials and the coverage on that social media platform, if you will. Exactly. Uh, so it's really like a catch 22. <laughs> if, uh, if the sponsors would come forward, trusting you could do it and then you do it, you're all well and good. But most of them are kind of like show me and then I'll consider doing it. Yeah. So yeah, the sport, some sports like that is in a very difficult situation where they could make it better live feed and make it like an exciting television program if they had the money to fund all the cameras and the announcers and the, you know, uh, live feed stuff and the television truck and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, <laughs> overall the social media is where it's at today. I think I agree. Um, I agree. 100%. Well, let's get back to yeah. Frank. So let's, okay. let's talk about, you know, you, you, you've, you've talking about up to Jackson and the, in the years there pretty, you know, probably hit some more of the stories, but now you're, is your next phase the champ? Well, no, actually, um, we left off about in the, not quite the middle of okay. the Jackson days, um, because I'm still living in Northeast Ohio. Um, my daughter now is in college and I end up getting a divorce. And um, at the same time that I'm getting a divorce, Daryl Jackson is playing more of a role in the company. And he happens to be going through a divorce. <laughs> and uh, together we're comparing notes and so forth. But at any rate, the motorsport business is growing. 
and doing really well. And Daryl tells me after my divorce that he has an opportunity again for me to move down to Greenville, South Carolina and um, run their motorsport business, basically. And so I'm thinking, well, new chapter in my life. And uh, what the heck? Nothing keeping me in Northeast Ohio. My daughter's, you know, graduated and doing her thing. And uh, so I accept and I moved down um, to Greenville, South Carolina. Um, once I'm down there, then take over uh, and, and help manage not only the motorsports business, but the event marketing business any traveling, uh, marketing displays, anything to do with uh, events, marketing, and even have a couple account people that uh, report up through me. And uh, we really, you know, we were fortunate uh, that we just continued to grow the business. When I left Jackson, which would have been three years ago, I had 21 years with them. Um, all of that time was with BF Goodrich as a client as well. So if you think back about what I told you, 10 years working for Goodrich, 10 years as my own business and contracted to Goodrich, and then 21 years with Jackson, um, also with BF Goodrich and Michelin as a client. Um, so that's 41 years involved in, um, in motorsports and uh, was very pleased. Uh, when I joined Jackson, I was the 10th motorsport employee. When I left, there were over 70 full-time motorsport employees. Um, you know, the people that we were able to uh, get to work for us were people that um, were passionate um, they had a certain level of freedom, um, to think outside the box. In fact, we're encouraged to, um, the entire team was just amazing and worked really well together. And I think it was, uh, I think we assembled such a great group of people, um, uh, for a lot of reasons, um, some being that they were passionate about their work, had good work ethics and all those standard things. But the other thing was that, um, Jackson was just a good, solid company to work for, um, and really took care of their employees. Um, the turnover rate was very low. Um, we had lots of creative people. Um, and just a, a great company to work for. So I, I really enjoyed my 21 years uh, with Jackson, which, you know, got me up to uh, uh, 41 years in motorsports. Um, during that time, you mentioned some of the things that, uh, that I was able to do and would love to take a moment and talk about those two Baja 1000 victories. Absolutely. That was uh, that was probably one of the uh, most memorable things I ever did, and probably one of the proudest things that I ever did. Um, 
you know, for years and years, I talked about going down to Mexico and mapping the race courses and uh, GPSing them, making the notes, putting together the BFG map books, planning all of the personnel for pitting and all that kind of stuff. So spent a lot of time in the dirt, uh, always had a pre-runner to drive or a semi-pre-runner that we built for doing just that, getting in the dirt and being self-sufficient and so forth, and had done that for years and years. And uh, I get a call prior to the 49th running of the Baja 1000. And I get a call from Rod Hall, who is the only man at that time to have started all 48 of the previous Baja 1000s. Right. And out of those 48 starts, he had 23 wins in one class or another. And I get a call from him and we're talking and he says uh, he reveals to me that he has this um, this illness that uh, they're, they're still trying to figure everything out, but that he's not going to be able to race the Baja 1000. And uh, his goal had always been to be the first man to to do the first 50 and he'd be the only one and uh and of course get as many wins as he could so he was calling me to say i want you to drive for me and i, I mean i was blown away and he said uh he would get in he would be driver of record he'd get in for the start and finish as a uh, rider and as long as he did that, that qualified him to be driver of record. And his son, Chad, who is also a very accomplished racer and probably had seven or eight Baja 1000 wins in various classes, would be the other driver. So, so said basically, you know, um, it, it's you. I, I want you to do this. And. I immediately went to making excuses of why I might not be able to and really wondering if, if his mind wasn't also affected a little bit. <laughs> uh, and my first excuse was, you know, Rod, I got to work the event. And uh, he said, well, you have Nate now. You've done a good job of bringing Nate along. And we can jump back to talk about that uh, here, too, hopefully. Um, at any rate, he said, I'll call your boss. I'll call Daryl and ask him. I said, <laughs> oh, well, let, let me do that. But first, Rod, why would you want me? Why in the world would you want some guy that's really never raced to race for you in a race that's that important for you to start and finish? And uh, he said, well, I got three reasons. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, anybody that knows Rod Hall, what a character. Absolutely. I mean, a real character. And I'm like, this ought to be good. Okay, Rod, tell me your three reasons. And he goes, well, number one, you've been going down there for close to 40 years, helping to map the course. Yeah. And you go down in a truck. And to my knowledge, you've always come back. <laughs> and you've never had to have the truck come back on a on a hook or being towed, correct? 
I went, yeah. And he goes, well, that's one reason. He said, anybody that can go down, do the entire course, maybe do it a few times and come back without tearing the truck up, that's that's the kind of person I'm looking for. Okay, great. What's the, what's the second reason, Rod? And he said, with all that travel down there and the travel you did with Southfish and everybody else, he said, is there anybody that knows Baja better than you? And I thought about it for a while and I said, well, maybe a couple, you know, there, there might be a handful that knows it as well or better. And he goes, well, that's the second reason I want you. And I said, okay. And I said, well, Rod, what is, what's the third reason? And he said, uh, he said, Frank, you deserve it. If you want to do it, you deserve it. And you once told me years ago that that was on your bucket list, that you wanted to race with the team that knew how to get to the finish line. Well, my record speaks for itself. We know how to get to the finish line. And uh, he said, so that's the third reason. And, you know, that made me feel um, so good coming from Rod that he felt I deserved, which I I don't believe I did, but um, I, I was extremely honored. And so talked to my boss and uh my boss said absolutely just get everything set up so nate can run it on race day and you're free to go and so i did and the first year we raced there were quite a few vehicles in the class we were running uh his hummer h1 um i knew chad really well and uh we had always gotten along really well uh, so when he went testing, he had me out to drive, make sure I could get the job done and do all those things and get familiar with the vehicle and so on and so forth. And, um, uh, and so we did all that and, uh, race day comes and we had like six, seven, eight other vehicles in the class. And that was the year that there were two Mopars. There was a Raptor or two, um, a Toyota, I mean, some really, really good competition. And uh, lo and behold, we win. And we had pulled out a pretty good lead at one point, but then the truck on the way back towards the finish line, Chad was in it, um, and they started having problems, didn't know what they were, and so we were going way slower than everybody else. But the bottom line is we won by 20, 30 minutes. Um, and so that gave Rod his 49th uh, Baja 1000 race and his 24th win. Um, and I was really, really proud of that. So the following year, it's a point-to-point race for the 50th. And actually, my bucket list item was, yeah, to run and finish the Baja 1000, but in a point-to-point race. And, uh, but I wasn't going to say anything to anybody. Well, they, uh, he called me up again and says, are you ready for the 50th? And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) And, uh, he said, no, no. He said, we got her done last year. I'm sure you can this year. Do I need to call Daryl? I said, no, let me talk. So I did, uh, we went down there. Uh, the race didn't start off well. Uh, we uh, Chad pulled into the pit on the first driver change, 
10 minutes behind the leader and uh, I get in and then they found a broken CV and I sat there for an hour, hour and a half. And so we were way behind, Um, but got moving again and made up quite a bit of time. And pretty soon our competitor that was leaving, we see him parked on the side of the road working on it and we got by him. And from there, we never looked back and um, ended up uh, winning uh, Rod's 25th win in 50 races and uh, to be a part of that and to it's when Rod was making the film um, one more win I don't know if you've seen that rich or not yes, I have okay uh, it's when they were they were filming that one more win um, so to be able to spend time with Rod reminiscing in La Paz about having been the only guy to race in all 50 and to come away with 25 class wins was really special to be a part of that. So uh, at any rate, you know, and that, that, uh, that along with a couple other racers races has me with a record that, I, that is uh, probably second to none. I have a hundred percent win ratio. <laughs> <laughs> because from there, his son, Chad, was uh, working on that Chevrolet program for um, desert races in the U.S. And because I was able to hold it together and help him find the finish line down there for three years, he had me come up and race the Vegas Arena with him in the um, in the Chevrolet uh, that they had been racing and, uh, we didn't have any competition, but we started and finished all three, thereby giving us the win. And our, um, our goal each time was to beat the previous year's time that the Raptor had set. And we were able to do that all three years, but at any rate, so I got three Vegas Torino wins and two Baja 1000 wins. In five uh, tries. Total, <laughs> in five tries. So you can't do better than that. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But never thought of myself as a racer. But the two with Rod and Chad were just very, very special. Um, and, you know, so I um, want to regress a little bit uh, about my 21 years at Jackson. Um, during that time, you know, when I lived in Northeast Ohio, I had an assistant that would help me with some of the BFG stuff and other business that I had going on there. Um, then when I made the move to Greenville, he did not. Um, and so once I got down there, I was looking for another person to help me with the off-road program. And there was a gentleman that worked for us, worked for Jackson that I hired. His name was Victor Angon, who I think is still around. I think he has something to do with the, uh, off-road fabrication school. Correct. Um, at any rate, um, hired him, and he was going to be the heir apparent for when I did finally retire or start doing other things at Jackson. Um, lasted a couple years and then decided he was originally from the West Coast, decided to move back there, and we couldn't uh, have the job be on the West Coast. It needed to be right there with us. Um and so after that uh, period of time, had a guy that had worked for us for a long time, um, was part of our Michelin program, 
Um, his name's Nate Hunt, which is very familiar now. Um, he did Michelin programs, and then he did uh, some ride and drive programs with one of our other clients, BMW. Um, and then I used him to work our the media center at a couple of the larger events like the Baja 1000. Um, and I realized that Nate was, number one, a very, very hard worker. He was extremely intelligent, way smarter than I'll ever be. Um, he was very, very passionate and had a pretty good sense of common sense, um, which is how I feel I've always operated is just having good common sense and surrounding himself with good people. And I really felt he was a good person. And so um, actually hired him on as the off-road assistant and started him out doing um, some rock sport events and uh, closed course events and slowly moved him into the desert and uh, had him under my wing, I'm going to say for probably directly under my wing for probably eight years, um, but still worked closely with them um, for the past two or three years. Um, and now, as you know, he's running all of the BF Goodrich Motorsports program, which is a little bit of pavement and then the off-road stuff. Um, and Nate is one of those guys that uh, gives 110% all the time. Um, has been a great relationship person. And as you know, Richie, part of being able to be a long time in this industry is having good relationships with people. Um, and uh, Nate, Nate has all that. Uh, I believe he's very well respected. Um, and he's just the type of guy that... Uh, you want to be around. And uh, so I feel like as I was leaving uh, Jackson three years ago, um, leaving that program to him, I felt very good about. I knew that uh, he would carry on and uh, do it in a way that would be, uh, that would more than live up to my moral and ethical standards. And he definitely has accomplished that. Right. I think he was um, a great fit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I'm not sure Jackson nor BF Goodrich realize what they have in Nate Hunt. Um, he's one of the best of the best. And he would be that way for any program that he was managing. Um, right now it's off road and it's been off road for 10 years, but, um, and anything he does, he's going to do it to the best that it can be done. Um, and if he doesn't know how, he's going to figure it out because he is, as I mentioned, pretty intelligent. Um, but have the highest respect for him. Um, so 21 years goes by and uh, Larry Jackson is retired um, and Daryl is running the business. And uh, I'm told that they are retiring me. And uh, I was like, uh, guys, I'm really not ready to retire. Well, you know, business had changed. A lot of things had changed with the company and so forth. And, uh, you know, they were making way for new people and new things to happen. And uh, so they retired me. Um, well, I come home 
Um, and, and I knew, I mean, we had discussed it, you know, months in advance. And um, at first, maybe I wasn't okay with it, but I've never been that type of person that looked back or had a vendetta or anything like that. So I just figured, again, a, another new chapter in my life. Right. And uh, while I wasn't ready to retire, I was ready to start working towards retiring and not working as hard as I, I had been. And so I uh, moved my business home, put the word out that I would be available. And uh, Jackson was kind enough to talk to BF Goodrich and they decided they might want to keep me around a little bit longer on a contract basis. So uh, I contracted with Jackson to help him with anything and everything, um, and mainly pertaining to BF Goodrich and Michelin. So I knew I had some business there. And uh, that year that I ended up leaving uh, Jackson, I was sitting around up in uh, at Crandon, Wisconsin, for the Labor Day event. And the big talk at that point in time was how Lucas had pulled out, how the tracks in the Midwest were looking for a new sanctioning body to come in and sanction their events and create a series and continue on what had been tradition back there for years. And um, there's a group um, called ISOC that produces um, snowcross events, world-class snowcross events. And uh, they also do television, live feed. They have other services that they provide. And they were actually providing a uh, live feed production for Crandon. And uh, most of the tracks had got to know them a little bit and approached them about becoming the new sanctioning body in the Midwest. And they basically, he was interested, but didn't know anybody that knew off-road and this was the last event of the season there were a lot of the other track owners that were at this event and one by one they kept pointing their finger at me that if carl wanted to uh to find someone to help him i would be the person and uh so carl and i talked for about three months before I finally agreed to take on that role. And that role is I am the uh, series director for Championship Off-Road. And what makes this such a great fit is Carl and his group do a great job with the TV production. They do a great job with knowing how to run an event, keep it on schedule. Uh, they have people that can do entries and do the purse payouts and do all of those kinds of things that you need when you're uh, when you're running a series like that. Um, and so my role as the series director was twofold. One, it was to come in and try to get some sponsor support. Right. But also, more importantly, direct the series for the future. And uh, took me about three months, but I finally agreed to it, uh, made everybody aware this was not going to be anything that would happen quickly. It would need to, uh, there are certain things we just had to change and do differently and that I needed to have a pretty strong voice in, in the way 
that we ran those things and the things that we did. And uh, once that was agreed upon, uh, the first thing I did was I hired a tech director that to me is probably, if not the smartest, one of the smartest guys to ever be uh, ever be a tech director. Um, and that was Bill Savage. Um, a lot of people don't like him because he's DQ'd a lot of people, but I needed someone that I could go to and say, here's what I want the end result to be. You tell me how to get there. Right. You know, I could tell him what classes I wanted. I could tell him I wanted him to stay stock or not. I could tell him whatever it is I wanted. I could bounce things off of him. And so we brought him on board, which was huge. Um, very, very large in terms of getting the rules and everything in place. Um, that first year that we started the series, then the pandemic hits. Somehow, some way, and I don't know how, but we managed to pull off five events. Um, how many we did you have, have scheduled? Five, we, we had five scheduled. Oh, perfect. But okay. We had five scheduled at four different tracks. Okay. Well, we were able to pull off all five weekends, which was 10 rounds of racing, at three tracks. So we circled back on a on another track. Um, so that was a success. It was pretty funny, Richie. And, uh, you know, when I called around to let people know I was doing this, and it was going to be a, it would be successful uh, and was trying to get support from many of the manufacturers or sponsors. Almost to a word, I got told the same thing. You know, closed course racing is dying. It's on a steep decline. And we've heard your story a thousand times that how you're going to take it to the next level, how you're going to do this, how you're going to do that and so forth. And it was more like, show us, we'll pay attention, and then we'll consider for next year. And it was like, fair enough. So the, uh, <laughs> the challenge was thrown for sure. And uh, I think we only ended up with two or three sponsors the first year. Um, but we immediately started doing some things. Um, my philosophy with everybody, both um, our team at Champ Off-Road and the tracks and the racers was all the same. And I was very, very transparent on what that was. In order for this to succeed, we had just formed a partnership. And while it wasn't official, what I meant to say was we had to all be on the same page. We had to all work together. And our decisions on what we would or wouldn't do while we would be making most of them. It, when we made a decision to do something, it had to be good for the track. It had to be good for the racer. And it had to be good for the series. Right. And so a lot of the decisions and things we did, that is how we approached it. And um, the first thing first major thing that I did that really upset some companies and some people was uh, the cost of racing in a lot of these classes had gotten out of hand. One of them specifically was Pro 2 and Pro 4. 
where at one point in time they were running pure race tires. And so the only tire companies that would get involved were ones that could make that race tire and make one that was competitive. You know, after that got launched quite a few years ago, pretty soon Lucas, I think, was the first one to say, okay, well, you can only have that tire in Pro 4, not Pro 2. Um, but they were still allowing it in Pro 4. Um, only by that time, only a couple, two, three, maybe four tire companies were running um, and building race tires. And my first rule was no more race tires. We are going all DOT tire racing. And so one of those companies that was making race tires was BF Goodrich. Yep. And they basically told me how stupid I was as well as how that would be a big mistake that it would not go anywhere. Um, so on and so forth. And other companies that were making the race tire shared those same thoughts. Well, here we are two and a half years later and we have six tire companies supporting the series. And I don't mean just supporting a few racers in the series. I'm saying supporting the series and the racers and attending every event with tractor trailers and activation and everything else. We have a real DOT tire war going on, if you will. Excellent. Um, it, it's, it's unbelievable. So, you know, uh, a couple of those companies that said we were silly are got involved. Uh, BF Goodrich is not. That's probably another story because it's probably more about the personnel uh, steering the ship right now than it is anything else uh, because they're losing out. Uh, they have no idea what's what's going on there, and uh, they're they're losing out. Um, the series in two and a half years is way farther along than what I thought it would be. Um, the first year we did our live feed, and as I mentioned, had the uh, drone pilot come in. Our numbers were about 160,000 viewers each weekend. Last year, we were at about 180 or 190,000 viewers each weekend. Wow. Yeah. And uh, this year, we have changed it up and went to an uh, organization called Flow Racing. And flow racing is a pay to pay to view, but they have over 2000 events, all motorsports that airs on their programming. Um, and they guaranteed us at least the same number of viewers that we had been getting, which was already substantial. So we're looking forward to this year to see how that shakes out. Um, we think it's going to increase our viewership by another 30%. So we think we'll be over 250,000 each weekend. Um, the live feed production has been good enough that CBS has picked us up. And uh, this will be our second year in a row that we'll be on CBS. Um, our racer count at the events is spectacular. I mean, Numbers that, uh, if we ever seen them before, 
Um, it wasn't for long and it was quite a while ago. Um, sportsman classes are full, probably averaging 30 competitors a class. The pro classes, uh, this uh, pro light has grown to approximately 20 entries, um, which is unheard of. Our pro two last year, we had a high of 26 or 28. Um, I think a low of 19 or 20. Um, at the end of the Midwest and West Coast uh, series, they were down to two or three pro fours each. Right. Um, we're now at 10 to 12. Um, so the racing has been spectacular. The racer support has been good. Sponsors have come on board. Um, the series is running really well. And, uh, you know, when I took the role, I said, I'd give them three years and hoping we could have it, uh, in a direction that, uh, would show that it's going to continue to prosper and grow. And, and, you know, we've surpassed my expectations. Um, we added an event weekend last year. So we went from five weekends and 10 rounds to six weekends and 12 rounds. And now we are, uh, for next year, uh, we've got a letter of intent to race in Georgia. So it'll be outside the Midwest. And that'll raise us to seven weekends with 14 rounds. And my goal, uh, before I finally hang it up and retire is to have us at eight weekends and 16 rounds. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I talked about moving down to Greenville, South Carolina. And, uh, when I made the move and came down here to Jackson, I brought my horses with me. I've always had horses and, uh, and I touched upon that a little earlier, I think, but you know, I, always having horses, you know, people would tease and say, Oh, so you're a cowboy. And I never thought of myself as a cowboy because I always thought a cowboy is one that messes around with cows and can <laughs> hurt a cow or cut a cow or rope a cow or whatever. <laughs> so about six or seven years ago, um, in addition to trail riding, I decided I was going to be a real cowboy and wanted to start doing that kind of stuff with, uh, with horses. So bought a young horse and found a trainer that I went to and said, uh, I don't want you to train my horse. I want you to train me so I can train my horse. And, uh, he'll tell you now that it was probably would have been easier just to train my horse, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> But he he helped me so much, and I learned so much. Now, I understand I'm a guy that's been riding for, you know, uh, 55, almost 60 years. Um, so already was pretty well established in terms of being able to ride and handle a horse, but didn't know anything about this ranch horse competition. But for the last, I don't know, six or seven years, and especially the last three since I've been working towards real retirement, um, I've been doing ranch horse competition and I got a horse that didn't cost as much as a lot of the other horses that I compete against and, uh, kept working and working and working and ended up going to the world show a couple years ago 
and got in the top 10 a couple of times and was really inspired by that. Went back uh, two years ago and won a reserve world champion, which means you came in second. And uh, came away from that saying, you know what? I just got to work harder and I can win a, cha- a world championship. I just know I can. Well, you know, besides being good, like with racing, you have to have a little luck on your side. You know, in this case, you have to draw the right cows. Um, and your horse has to be on that day and you have to be on that day. And it becomes your day. And uh, lucky for me, last year I had a goal of going and winning a world championship. And I get there and I did, and I won it in ranch roping and ranch roping is where you go cut a cow out of the herd and rope it. And I won. And then two days later, I'm competing in another class where you're basically cutting cows and I won another one. So you mentioned it earlier that I was accomplished or a national champion. Yeah, I actually won two world titles last year. That's awesome. And, and, uh, so that's, that's my passion today. I mean, I still love the challenge of motorsports and what we're doing at camp off road. But if I was going to say, what's my number one passion right now, it's American ranch Race competition and, uh, being a cowboy. So, uh, I, uh, I'm on Facebook. I don't post a whole lot, but every once in a while I'll give a mention of, what I just did or where I just came from, but, uh, I'm starting to gear up to go to the world show this year, which will be, uh, in Florida, the middle of July, um, at the world equestrian center. So Florida um, in the middle of July. I know, I know, but this, uh, world equestrian center air conditioned, the stalls, the arena, everything is climate controlled. Perfect. So once we're inside, we're, uh, we're good to go. That's good. So, so that's kind of, uh, Oh, Oh, one other thing that I'm doing, um, that's, that I think is worth mentioning. Cause I'm really proud of it. You know, I talked about how I got a divorce and moved down to Greenville, South Carolina. Well, after being down there for about three months, my daughter calls me and says, Hey dad, do you think you got room for a horse and me? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, sure. And she moved down with me. So she's had horses all her life. Also, she uh, joined the Air Force uh, Reserves here about six, seven years ago. Uh, She wasn't where she wanted to be in life and uh, left the animals with me and joined and did her basic and did her training and did all that. And then got quite a few assignments. I think she's pretty good at her at what she does. She just got back from a uh, six-month stint abroad and uh, come home and is enjoying going back to being just a reserve and not active and got a uh, civilian job where uh, she still works on the Air Force Base doing what she does. But her and her husband, about two or three years ago, bought two years ago, bought a 35-acre farm in Florence, South Carolina. And I'd been living up near Greenville and had a little 13-acre ranch, all set up for horses and everything. And she called me last uh, last year and said, hey, you said when you are getting ready to, or when you retire, you're selling your place. 
and want to travel with your horse a little bit. And I said, yeah. She said, why? Why are you going to wait till you retire? I go, what do you mean? She said, well, the market's pretty stupid, uh, crazy in terms of what they're getting for places. You ought to sell now while you can get the most. And then I said, well, then what would I do? And She said, well, you could move down here and build a little place in the back of our property. And I thought about it for about four or five months. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be fun to go down and live on their property, help them with that. But as they start a family, I can spoil the kids and then send them home. Yep. Maybe make a cowboy or cowgirl out of one of them. So I, I did move down here. I'm staying with them right now and I'm building what they call a barn dominium. Yeah, that's my goal yeah. too. <laughs> barn dominium. <laughs> yeah, they are so cool. Well, Rich, I am uh, I'm about 30 days out from moving in. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, as, as I mentioned before, life has been really good. I've been really blessed. And I don't think now that I'm closer to retirement, I still don't think I've worked a day in my life <laughs> um, because I've always loved what I'm doing. And I'm still loving what I'm doing. But now I'm doing more of the the horse stuff than I ever have before. And uh, it's, uh, it's everything I thought it would be. Excellent. And um, you you have grandchildren? Not yet. Not yet. They okay. need to get busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got eight. <laughs> you have eight? Yeah, Shelly. Yeah. Um, between us, we have five kids and eight grandchildren. That is awesome. Now, are any close to where you're living? No, they they're spread out. We have kids in Minneapolis. Um, we have. Um, kids in the, um, Southern Utah, and then we have okay. kids up in Idaho. So we, uh, we get to be the cool, the cool grandparents and swing in and, you know, spend time with them, tell them stories. We send them postcards from where we're at and, you know, we're, the, we're the cool grandkids, grandparents, because we're the ones that, you know, kind of like not jet set, but that kind of a thing, you know, we just appear and then we're off again to go do more adventures. And now that the grandsons are getting older, um, our oldest Jacob, he's 13. Now this will be his sixth year of being on the road with us. And then I hope to get, uh, get the second one, Austin on the road with us, uh, this year or at least next year. And, uh, he's 12. So it'll be, uh, you know, them traveling with us for, you know, a few weeks at a time. It'll be pretty cool. That is, that is awesome. That is awesome. And yeah, you know, you know, to them, not only are you these grandparents that kind of pop in and out, but the things that you do and the types of events that you go to are very different, which make them very, very cool to those kids. I'll bet. Yeah. Cause we're not sitting at home like the others. You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that, but, you know, they get to see them all the time. So that's, you know, it's a little, uh, you know, when they get, when they get to come with us, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, we get to shoot rifles, um, supervised, of course, um, you know, shoot pistols and drive the Jeep and, you know, do the off-road thing and all that kind of stuff and which they don't get, you know, otherwise. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. 
that is uh that's very cool that's very cool um you know one thing um that i i didn't mention and just to tell you something that i may or may not end up doing here in another year or two um i ended up buying the uh pre-runner that we used um to mark the course um they were getting nate uh building him a new one. Oh wow and yeah, and the old one that I've been using, it's a 93 model. I thought, you know, one day I'd probably like to go down to Baja and get lost for a few months <laughs> and uh, be able to relax and spend time in places that I simply went through and never had time to, you know, stop and smell the roses or check the place out. So I bought it. Um, had some work done on it and it's sitting out there all prepped and ready for me when I'm ready to, uh, to make that trip to boss. So I think one of the first things I'm going to do when I'm fully retired is I think I'm going to call up a few friends and say, Hey, I'm heading to Baja. Don't know for how long. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to be doing and where I'm planning on going and exploring and, if uh if you want to tag along for all or part of it you know uh please come join me so i am planning a uh a baja trip in the future wow. uh, probably next fall and uh who knows where that'll take me but uh i've always been intrigued with baja and uh love it and you know, during the Baja 2000, Sal and I tried to route the course so many different ways, and some of those were denied. But when we went down there and ran through those areas, they were areas we'd never run through before and didn't have time to explore them much other than to go through. And so those are some of the areas I want to go back and check out uh, when I do fully retire. Well, put me on that email list because I would love to come down and hang out. I know that back in the day, probably 10, 10 or 12 years ago, I threw out there that to, uh, to you and to Jeff and then to Nate, when he started was let me help with the course marking. And I know that that, uh -huh. that was pretty difficult to make happen and stuff, but I understand that, but I would love, I love to explore. And I love to go okay. places I've never been. Every time we go across the country, if we're not driving the semi truck, if we're driving the Raptor or the Jeep, we are, we always take back roads. You know, we went yes. all the way from mini, just outside of Minneapolis, all the way to Laramie, Wyoming, back roads and off road. And then, okay. then we ran out of time. And had to jump on the highway to get to Vegas so that we could get started with the, uh, the rebel rally. And cause we staffed that. So okay. those are the kind of things that we like to do. We pull our adventure trailer and we just go park wherever we, we want to out in the middle of nowhere. If there's no state parks around or anything like that and, uh, set up and continue on the next day if we need to. So you know, if you're well, it, at least give me a, a an agenda or something and I'll I'll find you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will I will definitely do that. And and you know, Rich, thinking about I mean, we covered 
oh my gosh, in this conversation, we covered a lot about uh, who I am, what I do, and, you know, my career and all that kind of uh, stuff and information. But, you know, um, the one area, and uh, I could probably kick myself, um, that I didn't talk about. And uh, it's also an area that uh, you have been gracious enough to, uh, to promote on some of your podcasts. And I know this because I've heard it. Okay. Okay. And so if you will allow me, I would like to take a few minutes and talk about the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Absolutely, because it is dear to my heart. And as I wind down, I want to get more involved. I want more people to join this great organization that's going to, you know, record in the various different ways our history. And uh, we need to we we need to promote it. Well, very good. Well, you know, as Rod Hall was resurrecting um, the Hall of Fame. Uh, that he bought the rights from early on. He had Bob Bauer on board and Bob and him unpacked the boxes and got a few other people involved. And Rod really felt strongly about it. In fact, Rod funded it solely by himself for the first few years. And uh, as things started picking up and moving forward, um, he asked me if I would consider sitting on the board of directors. And so um, I did, um, that was, gosh, I don't even remember, but several years ago, maybe as many as nine, eight or nine, I'm not sure. Uh, well, yeah, it's been at least that long at any rate, been on the board of directors that long. Um, the board now has, it's a little bit larger board, some very, very sharp, uh, individuals from the industry. The off-road motorsports hall of fame has done a tremendous job of you know capturing the history of our sport and uh and uh uh starting to promote it and you know we do all that through there's only two ways of funding one is our membership drive and you know anyone can be a member from a 25 dollars voting member to you know a, a bigger uh i think they call it winner circle member um or corporate sponsors so that's one way we fund it. And then the other way that we fund it is um, through our one event each year, which is the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Um, and we do a silent auction there, and it's a fundraiser to raise funds for, for the Hall of Fame. And uh, in fact, I'm just back from uh, last Monday. The voting committee met. And uh, I'm chairperson on the voting committee, and uh, there's 20 people that are uh, voted in to be on the commodi- uh, voting committee. And uh, we reviewed uh, 40, I believe it was 46 or 48 packets. Wow. And uh, chose the inductees, which will for 2022, which will be, uh, which will happen, we'll probably announce it mid July or 1st of August. And that'll be the class that we induct this uh, October uh, in Las Vegas. So um, I I didn't mention that or my role in that. But, 
you know, even after I retire, if they want me to continue sitting on the board, um, I will do it because I have such a passion for off-road and want to see the history preserved and want to see it continue to grow. And um, I have listened to a couple of your podcasts and really like them. And in uh, the two that I think I listened to, um, you promoted it both times. And uh, I was like, and and if for no other reason than that, I was willing to jump on one of your p- podcasts. I thought that was really cool of you to do that um, and uh, really appreciate it. So I did want to mention I have an involvement in it and have a passion for it and uh, and uh, want to promote it as best I can. That's awesome. I, I do have a, a passion. You know, that's why I've been in this as long when I figured out I could do something to get involved besides being a manufacturer or, or a driver racer and became a promoter. It was because I had, I loved the sport. I loved being an enthusiast, um, and trail riding. I loved watching the rock crawls, um, to begin with, and then getting involved and, and helping judge. And then when I moved back to California, you know, I decided to start Cal rocks and then it changed into we rock and I just kept doing it and, you know, had a chance to own Vora did the same thing with dirt riot. And it's all because of this passion of being outdoors motorsport, but also because of the people that are involved across the board in off-road motorsports, whether it's rock crawling or desert racing, it's just a, a unique community. And I really want to see, the history preserved and you know we're rock crawling is now 24 25 years old and my my goal is to get more of the rock crawling known and and the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by pushing the membership for the enthusiasts to get involved with the off-road motorsports hall of fame as a member and to find out what, you know, and so that's, that's, that's my goal over the next thing. I mean, we're, we're trying to, we put together some magazine articles for four low magazine, the magazine that we publish as well. And then, you know, announcing it, trying to talk about it as much as I can here on, on conversations and then, you know, at our events as well, try to push it. And, you know, yeah. I, I too, you know, I, we've been, for years now, um, I was there when you were inducted, um, and I, you know, I've been there well since I think 2010. I've made every one of them, and it's uh, that they've had, and and I, I really, um, I'm going to continue doing that until I can't anymore, because of the you know, just the people that are involved, you know, yes, and the whole ideology yes, behind it. Yes, absolutely. So I agree. It needs to be promoted and that's going to be my next thing is to really push on it. So yeah, everybody that's listening to this, become an Ormhoff member. As like yes. Frank said, is it a voting member at $25 a year um, is a great way to get started. And you get a chance to vote on those, those names when they, uh, when they come up for, not the the hall inductees up to seven they can bring in, but into the uh, the 
impact awards that are that are given out at the same time, which are yes. industry industry and everything from media to promoters to um, land use to racers. So yes, get involved. Yes. Well, Frank, I want to say thank you so much for for spending the time and uh, talking about everything. I know that we could probably talk for another two hours and really delve into a lot of storytelling and stuff like that, but we'll have to save that for when we get together in Baja. <laughs> that sounds wonderful, bud. And I will, uh, I'll, I'll remember to let you know when I do that Baja trip. And, uh, I certainly look forward to seeing you again. And, uh, if not before, at least at the, uh, off-road motorsports hall of fame induction ceremony. Yes, I will definitely be there. All right, Frank, thank you so much for, for coming on. You bet. Thank you for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.